Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. April, this week, you and I actually created our very own fashion history mystery question for ourselves. We are, of course, fresh off the heels of the 2019 Couture Fashion Collections for fall. And I texted you last week inquiring if you knew when Haute Couture Week, as we know it today, was born. So, you know, these very highly exclusive showings of only a select handful of designers that shown um, twice a year. And both of us really kind of had this big question mark above our heads And that made it clear to me that it was time to immediately nerd out and get real specific, which all of our listeners know by now, you and I love to do. Oh, yes, we do. Um, Before we dive into the question, though, Cass, maybe we should do a quick haute couture refresher course. Um, Some of our listeners may recall from our very first episode on Charles Frederick Worth that in the mid-19th century, Worth became one of the founding fathers of haute couture, or literally high sewing, translated into English, when he decided to design dresses for his clients. Right, because prior to this period, it was common for women to really work in tandem with their dressmaker to create their clothes. So they weren't really purchasing already designed garments from fashion designers. And as more and more fashion designers emerged in the latter part of the 19th century alongside Worth, La Chambre Syndicale, which is the first governing body of the haute couture industry, was created as really a way to legitimize, regulate, and protect what was then this fairly nascent uh, new industry. And this phrase haute couture was not introduced into the organization's name until 1945, so just at the end of World War II. And membership in the organization provided official designation as to who could and who could not call themselves a couture house. And it was and still remains a professional standard to which designers compare themselves. And there's there's a lot of other intricacies that go into this designation. Um, The organization also um, would dictate collection launch dates, the required numbers of new designs that were to be shown, matters of intellectual property and piracy, as well as also some HR um, benefits for the haute couture workers. Right. And also, of course, inherent in the haute couture industry is this art of hand craftsmanship. So these clothes are really made to measure for clients by highly skilled masters of their trade. So you have men and women who sew the garments um, from them to the various ateliers that specialize in everything from lace and embroidery to pleating and flower making. And so for me, the haute couture has always represented the highest expression of the art of fashion. And I really do look forward to these presentations twice a year. Ah, so do I. But whereas for almost 100 years, haute coutures were the standard in fashion, today this distinction has really been replaced by ready-to-wear, the rise of ready-to-wear, high-end ready-to-wear. And today the Chambre Syndicale de la Haute Couture is one of three syndicals, which also include um, men's fashion and women's fashion ready-to-wear that exist under this larger umbrella organization that is the Fédération de la Haute Couture et de la Mode, um, which is now the French fashion industry's governing body. And, and Cass, I don't think we both realized that we kind of already knew the answer to the question of like, when did Haute Couture Week start? 
And I think we're like, oh, wait, it always was Haute Couture Week as soon as they started doing the presentations. And and what we weren't really immediately realizing when we were thinking about this, that it was this rise of ready-to-wear in the late 60s and, and the early 70s that was this dividing line between the two. So the couture has always shown twice a year. It's just that now there is this another official designation um, of Pret-a-Porter. Yes. And from its creation in 1868, the members of the Chambres Syndicale, as you mentioned, really set the pace in fashion. So we have the biggest names in 20th and still 21st century fashion that were originally haute couturiers. So designers such as Paul Paré, of course, and Jean Lanvin, but also Viennet, Chanel, Balenciaga, Givenchy. And just as we have fall and spring showings of ready-to-wear designs, in addition to, of course, resort, there's so many collections now. Um, These designers, and to be clear, I'm talking about when these designers were actually alive and were helming their namesake brands. So as April mentioned, they were showing their collections twice a year to eager buyers from around the world. But this all changed in the 1960s when this new generation of young, ready-to-wear designers helped to revolutionize fashion, not just in what we wore, but how clothing was produced and consumed because there was this really seismic shift that happened in fashion when ready-to-wear designers, not haute couturiers, were setting the pace of fashion. And some haute couturiers, such as Yves Saint Laurent, simply adjusted along with the times and started producing high-end ready-to-wear lines. Um, So did also Paco Rabanne, who we're going to be talking about on an upcoming episode, and Pierre Cardin and André Carrege, while others like Cristobal Balenciaga shut up shop in the late 60s. And and not to say that he was against ready-to-wear. He had for, let's be fair, been in the fashion trade for more than 50 years at this point. But <laughs> it was definitely a turning point. Right. And there was also these broader shifts happening across society where even these rich women that could, of course, still afford haute couture fashion did not really want it anymore. I mean, who really has time to spend hours in fittings when you could be jet-setting around the world with your luxury ready-to-wear clothes? In 1967, Bernadine Morris, who was fashion critic for the New York Times, wrote about the American collection shown that year, quote, The woman who orders a dress by Jeffrey Bean, Pauline Trager, or Fernando Sarmi next fall will have several conveniences. She will save the plane fare to Paris without giving up the fashion excitement. She'll be able to pick up a dress in sequins or feathers or a coat lined with fur at her neighborhood high fashion shop without waiting around for fittings. Yeah, and I actually, April, I had the best time tracking this transition from haute couture to ready-to-wear and uh, exclusively the New York Times archive, and especially reading articles by fashion critic Bernadine Morris, who um, I kind of followed over the course of 10 years. But Bernadine, actually, I did not realize this. She just passed away last year at the age of 92, and she was hired by the New York Times in 1962, and she did not retire Uh, from the magazine until 1995. She became the chief fashion writer in 1995. So in 1972, Bernadine wrote an article, Couture Alive, Pulse Fading. It may be in its death throes, but the couture still stands, supported mainly by the twin pillars of Valentino in Rome and Christian Dior in Paris. It's been shaken to its roots by, one, the thinning ranks of private customers, and two, the lack of interest of American store buyers and manufacturers. So time was changing. 
That same year, however, she also acknowledged that, quote, many top designers have left the couture to devote their efforts to ready-to-wear. And by 1970, couture house registration with the Chambre Syndicale had dropped to just 19, which Yikes. of course, yeah, was a drastic change from um, its levels in 1946 when it was 106 members. So this loss in membership was attributed to the high cost of maintaining the Chambre Syndicale's high standards, but also, as we have, you know, kind of mentioned, times were just changing. Yeah, and in 1978, an article in Women's Wear Daily reads, quote, nobody seems to be talking about the death of the couture anymore. Within the fashion industry, the couture seems to have found its accepted place as a fashion laboratory, a loss leader, and a giant publicity and promotion operation designed to keep designers' names in the public eye and thus support lucrative ready-to-wear and licensing. And I thought this was particularly apt, April, because they literally could be talking about the couture industry today. Mm-hmm. Still remains very much uh, this kind of advertisement for the brand, even though it doesn't necessarily make money for the company. These shows really maintain these, um, you know, they're really still these testaments to heritage, tradition, artistry, and spectacle. And they're presented twice a year in January and July. And the most expensive of the haute couture shows can cost these houses millions of dollars. And I think that we can all agree that some of the grandest that have ever been staged um, were those by Karl Lagerfeld when he was at both Chanel and Fendi. Um, You know, for the Fendi Autumn Winter 2016 couture show, Karl presented his collection on, yes, that would be on, the Trevi Fountain in Rome. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, in celebration of the house's 90th anniversary, uh, models literally walked on water in the Trevi Fountain wearing pieces from the collection that was entitled Legends and Fairy Tales, which, of course, was purely magic. And that, as in my opinion, is when Haute Couture Week is at its absolute finest. So, when it really celebrates the inherent art and performance, you know, of fashion, but also this magic and whimsy and joy you know, that the presentation of clothing can bring with this sort of artistic expression when it's encouraged and celebrated vis-a-vis fashion. So actually with that, April, I have not yet talked to you, but I've been dying to talk about the most recent fall collections. What did you think? Well, I texted you, I texted you this, but we did not discuss it any further. That I really loved the Valentino collection. Right. Um, it was incredible, I felt like. And um, and before I kind of like delve into like what specifically I really liked about that collection, I, I noticed some kind of overarching themes throughout many of these couture shows and that there was a lot of interest in nature. Right. And also the celestial. Yes. And also we've had a few fashion history mystery um, inquiries from listeners already about when did people stop wearing capes and cloaks? <laughs> And I can tell you right now, they didn't because (laughs) this fall 2019 couture season was chock full of capes and cloaks. Um, We saw a lot of like big volume. All of these clothes, almost all of them were very easy. They looked very comfortable, which is kind of a marked difference from, say, 10 years ago. And I saw a lot of like references to silhouettes that we saw um, during the late Middle Ages and Renaissance. So 
I would say my top pick was Valentino. Uh, one of the things I liked about it was the fact that the models on the runway ranged all the way from their 70s until their teens. Um, I don't know if you noticed, Cass, but Lauren Hutton modeled in the Valentino show. Um, and I really thought the Valentino show was just kind of this explosion of color and this embrace of nature. And it took form in way, um, oftentimes in these patchworks and embroideries. Um, there were landscapes, there were florals, there were birds. It was it was all about color. And then I did read that some of those landscape embroidery patchwork pieces, um, some of them took 990 hours to create, which is insane. Yeah. And then there was this sleeveless gown that was kind of composed of these like gradiating squares of rose gauze material that just got bigger and bigger and bigger. 2,010 hours to create. Yeah. So it's like little squares that were attached to the corners with like um, little metal rings. And so beautiful. And that's really what the haute couture showings are all about is this incredible feat of craftsmanship and beauty and skill. And of course, I thought this would be, you know, I thought I found that collection to be kind of a reference to the 1960s too. I thought there was a lot of 1960s silhouettes and references, which is especially cool because of course the brand's founder, Valentino, founded the company in Rome in 1960. It is, of course, headed now by uh, Pier Piallo Piscioli. But um, yeah, just so incredible. Yeah. What was your favorite? Um, I really loved the Valentino. I thought the colors that were on display were just incredibly beautiful. But I also really loved Victor and Rolf. Ah, that was another one of my picks too. Yeah, especially after I read the story about it. And I don't know if I've ever told you this. Did I tell you that I... I was at a cafe in Amsterdam on my very first trip. Out of all the cafes, a fashion historian happens to sit down next to Victor and Rolf. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. No, you've never told not, me this before. Not that I said anything, but they were across the way from us and I just kept looking at them. It was just so, uh, you know, I mean, once in a lifetime experience maybe. Um, but Victor and Rolf uh, are incredible. Their collection was called Spiritual Glamour. So, not, you know, what we associate with like movie star glamour, but really the word's original meaning of casting a spell. And they said, our spell is to transform the feeling of doom about our environment into positive action. And this was an incredibly special collection because they collaborated with this Dutch artist and textile designer, Claudie Jeanstra, who's really this master of the ancient art of making felt. So their collection was pretty much all these incredible felted garments. And according to her website, she is immersed in all aspects of her work from maintaining a flock of rare indigenous Drenthi heath sheep and growing botanical dye stuffs on a small scale biodynamic farm in the Northern Netherlands. <laughs> she's, she's all in, folks. She's all in. And, and one, of the, one of her cool projects that they used in some of these felts was I read that she has recently undertaken a project to try to recreate Burgundian black. Right. Which, which again, yet another uh, reference to, you know, the late Middle Ages, early Renaissance period. So this Burgundian black was at the time considered to be one of the most expensive dye stuffs. Um, and the process was because it was like multiple layers of dyeing over and over with not only woad, but also matter to create this like really deep black color. So, um, yeah, I love that. I loved that. When I first saw the collection, my, my, my note to myself was celestial warrior princess question. Yes. Mark. 
<laughs> yeah, and felting is just such a refreshing, they're always refreshing. You really never know what you're going to get with Victor and Rolf, but to see felt on the runway, on the haute couture runway, is something you just do not often see. And so, you know, it's really cool that they collaborated with this artist who explores these ancient crafts of dyeing, not only dyeing, but spinning and weaving, embroidery and felting. So such a cool collaboration and such a cool collection. Head on over to Vogue Runway. Yeah. I also um, thought there were some really fun moments in the Gautier uh, show. As always, there are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like lots of references to Animalia. There was this one particular look that I really liked a lot that was um, a pairing of a black satin jacket and a skirt. But again, I'm not to harp on this Renaissance thing again, <laughs> but the silhouette of this jacket was the hanging sleeves from the early Renaissance with slits in them that reveal like this contrasting lining on the inside. And the lining in that case was leopard. And there's quite a lot of leopard in this collection. And it's, don't worry, it's not real. Um, some of the leopard that he did in the collection was actually created, the pattern is created by sequins, which is incredible. Yeah, and I mean, John Paul Gaudier always serves a really fun and entertaining show. Silhouette was really the star of that fashion parade for me. I mean, he he's presented so many incredibly fun and different silhouettes on that show, from like cones to all kinds of different sculptures. So he really shows what you can do with fabric on the female form, which is really cool. He always brings the fun. Yep. I also liked Ronald Vanderkamp's. Uh, he's a fairly new haute couturier, but 98% of his pieces are made from reappropriated materials. So that's really cool. Oh, I didn't see that one. I will have to go back immediately and check that out. Mm-hmm. And of course, our perennial favorite, Iris Van Herpen. Yes, what did absolutely. you think? Absolutely. I mean, I for me, she's the most exciting designer working today. I could always just look at her collection and not anything else, and I would be perfectly happy. I mean, she's literally bringing fashion into the future in a way that not many other designers can actually say they're doing. So I really, really liked it. I feel my my, my initial take on her um, to my little notes were the dresses that she created in this, this um, collection were kind of like walking topographies like so if you think about a map and like how topography is like a layering up you know to indicate um, altitude it's almost like she turned that in a weird flat 3d way and wrapped it around the body I don't know how else <laughs> to explain it well and then her collection's called hypnosis so all of these dresses are meant to be you know, scene and movement, even though when they're standing there, they look like they're in movement. And she does this using these incredible processes. I mean, I I just wrote mesmerizing because you could just sit there and like they moved before your very eyes. And she centered her collection around this sculpture, um, omniverse sculpture by this American kinetic sculpture by the name of Anthony Howe, whose pieces are actually powered by the wind. So it was this really beautiful presentation of of fashion and movement uh, that you should absolutely check out immediately. Yeah, definitely. Do do we have any not-so-favorites? Um, You know, I started to look at Fendi, and I just... There was some that just feels very outmoded to me. And I think that fur on the runway anymore and that, you know, luxurious setting and presentation, it just, I'm not feeling it. Yeah. It's time to go away. Yeah, it was definitely, <laughs> it was definitely a very 70s kind of themed mm-hmm. presentation. Mm-hmm. Um, same. I didn't even actually click all the way through all of the I looks. didn't either. I just, I can't. I'm sorry. Yeah. I just, 
Um, and, you know, that's a very historic house, too. We should mention the House of Fendi was founded in 1925 by Adele and Eduardo Fendi, and it was a fur and leather shop in Rome from the very beginning. So currently it's being uh, helmed by their granddaughter. And, of course, Karl Lagerfeld collaborated with them quite often. And you know what? I have to say, this breaks my heart to say, because you know what a big Scaparelli fan I am, but... I was excited to see. There's a new designer. Um, this is like um, one his first full year, Daniel Roseberry. And I was super excited to see what he was going to do because he was a designer at Tom Brown for many, many years. And I really liked what he did there. But looking at this collection, I was like, who's the client? I didn't get it. I, I You know, for me, like, honestly, I really think that only a woman designer is really ever going to be able to capture the spirit of Scaparelli in the same way that she did. And for me, part of that reason is, is because for her, clothes were a matter of like armor against a man's world. And I kind of think that a lot of the intellectualism and irony that Scaparelli put into the clothes that she designed was to combat misogyny, right? It's to have something witty to say when someone sees you in an instant. Like it's almost like a it's like almost like a retort back. And so so far for me, since they've launched the house, nobody has been able to capture that spirit. And and they've all been men designers. Just saying. and I think too, it's part of it is that they everyone think Scaparelli and they think surrealism. And so mm. they glom on to surrealism. And that was part of this collection. You know, there's all these surrealist influences and it's like, Scaparelli, Scaparelli was so much more than surrealism. That was certainly part of what she did. But you have to look at why she did it and who she did it with. It was this collaborative process. And like you said, there was meaning behind what she created. And I think with Scaparelli is this prime example of what happens when you try to bring a brand back. Mm-hmm. So Scaparelli was not here and now it was, you know, the name was purchased. And with, you know, really this idea of, is it to capitalize on the name of Scaparelli if you're not actually going to remain true to the designer herself? And that's a question that comes up a lot with people. I've gotten in arguments with people about, no, you know, they 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 don't need to always reference the designer. And it's and my question always is then why use the designer's name? Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> I think and I think we've said this before in the show that those relaunches are it's a pitfall. It's, it's tough. It's sticky yeah. wicket. It's a quagmire. Like mm-hmm. it's really, really hard to get it right. But I was so excited for Scap to relaunch. But mm-hmm. so far, at least for me personally, no one has hit that right tone yet. No. So. And there was certainly some very beautiful pieces. And again, even criticizing what we might not like aesthetically, these all of these clothes are just incredible feats of workmanship yeah. and craftsmanship. And the amount of work that goes into each and every piece is just mind-boggling. And another show that I was surprisingly not that into was Christian Dior. I don't know how you felt about it, but I, you know, it started with this very strong note, this woman in this all-white ensemble uh, she's wearing a T-shirt that says "Our Clothes Modern." It's reference to Bernard Radovsky's, um, this Austrian-American writer who penned this 1947 essay, "Our Clothes Modern," which we, of course, talked about in our Birth of the Modern episode because it accompanied the MoMA exhibition of the same name from 1947. So, "Our Clothes Modern," and Bernard is really addressing the impracticality of fashion and how so often. What we wear and have worn historically comes at the expense of function and comfort. So 
you know, there was a couple pieces that I really loved. She has her models in sandals. She has this really great deconstructed and unfitted bar suit, which I thought was a great play on Dior's bar suit. But then I just thought it got a little confusing (laughs) because then you have all the feathers and all the lace and it it literally seemed to me to go against the question, are clothes modern? Because a lot of those clothes weren't modern. They were pretty, but they weren't modern. I mean, I definitely did see some, like you said, some interesting twists on like classic Dior silhouettes. Yeah, those Um, were fun. those, Those references were there very strong and very clearly, but... My other comment on that show would be like the enti- almost the entire collection is black, which made it stand out from everything else that we were looking at because it seemed like this season for a lot of people was all about this exuberance of color, which struck a chord with me because of, you know, probably because of a lot of things going on in the world right now. Yeah. (laughs) You know, happiness and fun is a good thing in fashion. Um, But that entire Dior collection was very somber. It was very serious. And, you know, I mean, that has its place too. But I didn't hate it, but I didn't love it. And then the final one that I just was kind of disappointed in was Ellie Saab, because to me, again, it just felt very outdated to still be so overtly referencing Chinese, quote unquote, inspiration, especially when all these conversations are happening about appropriation, et cetera, to still make these like blatant adoptions. It's almost like a caricature, right, of like these these uh, traditional Chinese garments. So he makes incredibly beautiful clothing, but I just, I wasn't, I wasn't impressed. And plus it's just been done so many times that it just didn't feel new in any way, shape or form. There was definitely some really fresh moments, I feel like, Mm -hmm. in this couture presentation um, Mm -hmm. in, in the, and I think I would argue the people that we just named in Victor and Rolf and, and, and Iris Van Herpen, of course, and in Valentino. But then a lot of the other people just kind of seemed like they got left in the dust between those juxtapositions. Yeah. Something so fresh and so new versus something that's been done a million times. So anyway. Yeah. All right. Well, that was fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, speaking of Paris April, I think we maybe could just talk a little bit about our Paris June 2020 fashion dressed podcast fashion history tour of Paris. Yeah, so you can um, sign up and register for your interest if you'd like some updates about the itinerary and pricing and registration at likemindstravel.com. And you can just look under the events section. Absolutely. So that does it for us today, dress listeners. Be sure and tune in Tuesday for our full-length episode. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes this show possible each and every week. Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.